Good morning and welcome. It's a beautiful Lord's Day morning and a wonderful opportunity for us to rest together in the Lord. Um, before we begin, just a, a note. The announcement bulletin is filled with, uh, with really helpful notes about a busy week ahead of us. Um, but today, note the uh, family and individual pictures for the, the picture directory um, are being taken after the morning service. We're trying to get um, everybody's pictures updated onto the, uh, the photo directory. Um, so there's a, a few families, Ambrose, Apol, Baker, and Beeshold, that are asked to, uh, to meet with Jen Mingerink in the fellowship room um, after the morning service. But otherwise, please, please take a look at those um, announcements and take note of what's happening this week. But right now, we have the highlight of the week, and that's our opportunity to worship the Lord. So let's ask God to bless this time and to bless all that is done here as we join our hearts in a moment of silent prayer. Father, you have drawn us together, and we are yours. Grant that all that we do, even that which we think, might be pleasing to you, as you, through your Spirit, guide us to your throne of grace. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. Kings of earth and all peoples, princes and all rulers of the earth, Young men and maidens together, old men and children, let them praise the name of the Lord, for His name alone is exalted. His majesty is above the earth and the heaven. He has raised up a horn for His people. Praise for His saints, for the people of Israel who are near to Him. Praise the Lord. God has gathered to Himself a people from all nations and from all stations of life. And called us to be His. As that people, congregation of our Lord Jesus, from where does your help come? Our help comes from the Lord, the Maker of heaven and earth. Hear now His greeting. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Amen. Let us sing praise together to the Lord from number 316 in our Psalter hymnal. 316.
as God was preparing to lead His people into the land that He had promised them. He spoke once more to them through Moses, the law. See, they were going into a land that was filled with temptation. A land not unlike ours. Because, oh, we just heard in Psalm 148 that all the world, all of mankind, inherently is called to worship the Lord. We look around us and we see folks worshiping anything but. They worship the creation, the world, as though it was as worthy of worship as the one who created it. They worship men as though they were the God they were made to reflect. And God knew that they were going into that land where it was filled with all those false religions, with all the false worship, and they would need to be reminded that that's their inclination as well. Our inclination to worship that which is not God rather than the true God. And so He humbles us with this law as He humbled Israel long ago, reminding us of our calling to turn from that sin, but also of our inclination to adopt it. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and who keep my commandments." You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you nor your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long and that it may be well with you, In the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not murder, and you shall not commit adultery, and you shall not steal, and you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, and you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, his male servant or his female servant, his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. In short, as Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first and the great commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And we fail. 
Time and again, we find ourselves falling short, even as Israel did. We read of Joshua, and especially Judges, and First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, Chronicles. We see evidence time and time and time again that they forgot who they were and who they were to be. The only way we can heed this law, casting off the rebellion that comes so easily and worshiping the Lord our God in all that we do, in our work, in our marriage, in our parenthood or our childhood, in our recreation, in our use of resources, and especially in our worship. The only way we can do that to God's glory is by His strength. We need His forgiveness through Christ. We need His power through the Holy Spirit. So we need to confess our need for Him. We do that this morning with a rendering of Psalm 28. We can find that in our Blue Psalter hymnal, Selection 50. We're going to sing stanzas 1 and 2, 6, 7, and 8 as our confession of need for the Lord and of devotion to the Lord. 1 and 2, 6, 7, and 8. He answers that prayer. Supply thou all thy people's need and be their constant stay. And he does. 
2 Corinthians 5, the Apostle Paul reminds us that those who trust in Christ, everything's different for them. He says, the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That's the truth. For those who have trusted in Christ. Now we're still stumbling about. We're still learning how to embrace the fullness of that new identity that is ours. But that's the objective truth He has given us. That the old has passed away, the new has come. We are in Christ a new creation. Why? Because for our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Already in God's sight, that's us. We are the righteousness of God in Christ. And by the work of the Holy Spirit, that is becoming true day by day. So let's pray that God would continue that work within us that He has begun, transform that all of life would bear the witness, would bear the, the evidence of God's power at work within us. In addition, we have a number of prayer concerns. Um, the first is a note of prayer, uh, praise. Um, throughout our country today, people recognize the gift God has given with mothers. How can we as God's people not acknowledge that gift? So we should praise the Lord for the, the blessing that the mothers among us and the mothers in our lives are even as we pray for them in the difficult task they have. Um, in addition, um, Classes Michigan is slated to meet this, uh, this week on Tuesday uh, for a brief meeting to offer advice to one of the churches with a difficult matter uh, they're facing. Pray for wisdom um, in that on Tuesday. Um, we should pray for those who grieve, those who mourn. We think of Jack and Judy who um, had a a funeral on Tuesday for Jack's mother, Ruth. Um, we need to pray for the Smiths. They were both in the hospital this past week. Linda spent the week at Blodgett, where she remains. Um, she was treated for having fluid on the lungs, but also um, the bulk of her treatment and, and testing has been with regard to post-operative complications um, with her bowels. So, Please pray for uh, wisdom and, and healing and comfort for her. Bruce also spent much of the week at Butterworth um, due to a combination of pneumonia and uh, a bacterial blood infection. Um, but by God's mercy and, and his healing strength, Bruce was able to return home yesterday. So pray for continued healing there, but also praise the Lord for the healing he's experienced. Um, Joel Mulder has been unable to receive his chemo treatments for a few weeks, uh, but a new treatment is in the works. So pray for, for him and for, um, for Joel in, or for Maggie in that. Um, 
Bob has been able to, or has, has heard news from his most recent tests that he's not uh, in need of having surgery at this time. They're not finding evidence of any cancer remaining. So praise the Lord for that and uh, pray that the Lord would continue to provide healing and strength there. Um, there are a number of others that we're aware of and we need to keep them in prayer. But then finally, um, pray for our vacation Bible school prep. We're about a month out. Um, so pray that that would continue to go well. Um, I believe we have a meeting after worship this morning. So if you are involved in VBS or would like to be, um, please stick around in the sanctuary afterward uh, for that. But whether you're involved or not, please keep it in prayer. Let's pray. O Lord, our Heavenly Father, You have been good to us in a manner that is beyond measuring. We know our hearts. We we are humbled each time we hear Your law. And we think about how often we have fallen short, how often we have done what we knew we ought not to do. And have failed to do that which we knew we should. That rebellious streak within us has been there from the start. And we grieve it. We grieve how it grieves you. And how it hurts others. And how it misuses the gifts that you have given us. But we rejoice that you have given us the hope and the confidence of calling us a new creation in Christ, that you have given us your Spirit, and that by your Spirit, increasingly we're seeing change within us. We're seeing the desire to turn away from sin. We're seeing power to do the things we should. Father, we pray that you would continue to work powerfully within us, transforming us so that more and more we ourselves might see the change and the people around us might begin to ask the reason for the hope within us. Father, we thank you for this congregation and for the encouragement we receive from one another. Enable us to strengthen and bless each other as we wrestle with our sin, as we deal with the struggles of life, as we stumble. Lord, use our brothers and our sisters to strengthen us and walk alongside of us in the way. Lord, we thank you this day for the mothers in our midst. They've been given such a challenging calling. And we're so thankful for the the blessing that we've received through them. Lord, we pray that you would continue to strengthen and encourage them in their work of raising up disciples of yours. Provide the support they need through their husbands and through the church. And Lord, grant that they might see the fruit of their labor and rejoice to see their children growing up to know you and to serve you. We pray too for those who long to be mothers, but for whom you've not yet given that task. We pray that you would encourage and strengthen them, preparing them for the day when it, when it comes to pass. Father, we thank you for the healing that you have provided for many of our members, for the strengthening that you've given to Bruce that has allowed him to return home from the hospital, for the good news that Bob has received 
that has allowed him to avoid surgery. We pray for continued healing for both of them, as well as for others who have uh, experienced strengthening and blessing. We pray for continued healing for those who are um, undergoing treatment for various concerns. We think, Lord, of um, Linda as she continues in the hospital, as the doctors work on various treatment plans for her post-operative complications. Lord, we ask that you would comfort, strengthen, and encourage her, and that you would just remind her day by day of your perfect presence and care. Lord, we pray for Larry, who continues to struggle with fatigue and other symptoms of, of his low blood numbers. We pray that you would uh, bless and encourage him. We pray for Dan as he uh, continues undergoing cancer treatments. We pray that you would make those to be effective. Likewise for, uh, for Joel and the upcoming treatments that he will be beginning. Uh, for Jamie, for Keith and Lori as they have been dealing with significant uh, issues arising from Parkinson's and from dementia. And Lord, we ask that you would strengthen them as well. Lord, there are others. You know them. You know their ailments. You know their struggles. We pray that you would provide as only you are able. We pray for those who grieve. We think especially of our brother and sister Jack and Judy and and their family. Comfort and strengthen them, we pray. We pray for those who are wrestling with their sin. We think especially of our member who's under discipline. We ask for repentance and a softening there. And we pray, Lord, that you would humble all of us in the face of our sin. Reminding us that we cannot stand proudly in judgment of others because we ourselves are weak. We struggle, we fall, we rise up only by your power. Enable us to encourage and to hold one another accountable. Leading each other in the path of discipleship. Father, we pray for our uh, pregnant members and those preparing for marriage, that you would bless and strengthen and encourage each of them. We pray for our family members and friends who are in need. We ask for healing and strengthening and encouragement for them. Lord, we ask for your, your blessing on those preparing for vacation Bible school. Lord, we ask that you would Use those preparations to bless, strengthen, and build up those who will attend. So that those children at such a tender age might be confronted with the gospel and the transforming power of the gospel and the calling that you've laid upon us to live a life of Spiritual warfare, a life of of turning to Christ and and finding His strength as our hope and our encouragement. And Lord, we pray that You would draw many in who've not heard the gospel, that they might be encouraged and built up and strengthened indeed by Your Spirit and by Your Word. Lord, we ask Your blessing upon the church, universal this day. 
We know many of our brothers and our sisters, they gather for worship knowing that at any moment the authorities or, or adherents of false religions might attack, seeking to bring them low, seeking to silence the, the naming of the name of Christ. Lord, we pray that you would make them bold, that you would make them confident, that you would give them rest from the labors of the adversary. And we pray that your word would go forth with great power in their midst. Likewise, in those churches that have drifted from their, from their former love, that have allowed themselves to be influenced more by the world than by the Word. We pray that you would revitalize and renew them. Work powerfully by your Word and your Spirit in their midst to give them a love for you and for your Gospel, to give them a renewed vision for the new creation that they are in Christ. Lord, we pray that you would cause your church to rise up boldly and joyfully this day that you would equip us for the work that you've set before us and that you, would, that you would enable us as we go forth from this place and from this day to testify that we have been in the presence of God. Bless the pro- proclamation of your word that it might go forth with boldness and with truth and that it might be used to mold and shape and encourage your people. We pray all of this, Lord, along with the forgiveness of our sins, in the name of Christ, our Savior and our King. Amen. As we prepare to look to God's Word together, um, let's stand and sing number 67 in our Psalter hymnal. Number 67 stands as one, two, three. And 11, um, this psalm pleads for God's mercy. And as we'll see in our text, even those who have long known the Lord, those who walk with the Lord, uh, He chastens them. He disciplines us because we continue to live in the midst of spiritual warfare and sometimes we falter. But He calls us to plead for His help with the knowledge that He always hears, He always restores when we look to him in Christ. Number 67 stands as 1, 2, 3, and 11.
Well, this morning, we turn in Exodus 4 to a text near the end of the chapter, verses 24 through 26. We're going to start reading at verse 10, the start of our last text, so that we can see it in context. This is a, a brief text that I think is I think is often misunderstood because I know for many years I misunderstood it or simply failed to know what to do with it. Uh, But I do think that it provides some really helpful, if somewhat challenging, instruction for us and encouragement as we raise up our children because it demonstrates for us the love The passion, in fact, that God has for the children of the covenant. And so beginning at verse 10, we read, Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth, and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, O my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him, and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff, with which you shall do the signs. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please... Let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt... See that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, Let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Amen. Beloved children of God in Christ, first time I preached... Through Exodus, when I outlined my sermons, I typically outline my sermons at least two or three months in advance, and uh, this text was not on the list, and I had good reason for that. For one thing, the events related here involve some delicate matters, and nobody likes having to deal with that. 
But beyond that, there are translation issues. The Hebrew of this passage uses some words that are uncommon and difficult to wrestle with. And the references in this passage, who is being addressed at various crucial points, kind of vague. And frankly, I think some of our English translations don't serve us very well because they try to clarify things by adding words that aren't found in the original text and that isn't really all that helpful. But honestly, the biggest reason I was tempted to avoid this passage is simply when you take all of that together, it's difficult. It's a lot more fun to deal with a passage that has a meaning that is obvious. And it's only three verses, so really why bother? But then God wouldn't let me be okay with that. In his providential guidance, while I was working through the chapter leading up to this, this small, obscure text happened before me in a number of scholarly articles and in a number of circumstantial ways. And I couldn't be comfortable just bypassing it. And so I wrestled through it. And you know what? I was really glad I did. Because it taught me some amazing lessons, some really helpful lessons about how God sees these little children in our midst. And how we ought to see these little children in our midst. And the immense value that he sets upon both them and us. And we need to see that. Now, it's totally not my planning. I'm not that good that it happens to be on Mother's Day that we look at it. But I think it does, especially in light of Zipporah's rather brave actions here, remind us that this is a lesson that we as parents need. Because God's going to show us in this text that as precious as our children are in our sight, He loves them more. He cares about them more. And He has their well-being more in mind and in heart than we do. In this brief text, the Lord shows His jealousy For the children of the covenant. That's really the message here. The Lord shows his jealousy for the children of the covenant. And we see it first of all in verse 24 where God strikes Moses, this servant whom he loves, this servant whom he has chosen and called and worked so carefully with. He strikes Moses for unfaithfully withholding God's child. And that's our first point. Look at the context here. What happened between last week's text and today's. We saw in the previous two texts how Moses was so very reluctant to take up God's calling upon him. 
He raised a whole host of objections which God addressed one by one. Then he simply begged God to find someone else. And yet the Lord kept pushing, demanding, requiring, until finally Moses agreed. And as he prepared to depart, there was encouraging signs. Right? He goes back to, to... His father-in-law, Jethro, explains that he wants to go back to Egypt and check things out. Even there, we see that Moses is still kind of reluctant, right? I mean, he doesn't say, hey, God has called me to go and deliver his people from their slave. No, he says, I want to go and see if my brothers are still alive. Kind of downplays the whole thing. But he receives his father-in-law's blessing. Go, do what you've been called to do. And as he packed his bags, God spoke to him, assuring Moses, those enemies who sought your life, they're dead, they're gone. You don't have to worry about them, right? Beautiful reminder of God being behind all of this. And as they traveled, God made known to Moses further instruction about the work. Those signs that I gave you to convince the Israelites that I'm the one who sent you, you're to to give those to... Pharaoh too. You're to show him that you serve the true and living God. And you set before him my message. But know this, he's not going to accept it. He's going to refuse. That's from me. I'm working in this. I'm going to show my glory. I'm going to deliver the people with great power. Don't worry about it when Pharaoh rejects you. In fact... Warn him of the coming judgment upon him and upon his family. Matter of fact, listen to how he says it. You shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. And if you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. You see, God had claimed Israel as his own. This people was his possession, whom he loved. He loved this people the way a man loves his firstborn child, cherishing that child, delighting in him, desiring what is good for him, willing to defend him no matter who attacks. Note well the lessons God is teaching Moses in that lead up to his departure. He's reminding Moses that he is a just God. Those who obey him, he blesses. Those who disobey, those who rebel, they earn God's curse. And he's reminding Moses that everyone owes him their allegiance. Certainly Moses and the people of Israel whom he has claimed. But even Pharaoh, even this pagan king, owes God his obedience, his allegiance, his submission. And Moses is taught here that he is to be God's representative. Moses would speak to this great king as the spokesman for the true and living God. What he spoke is to be represented as coming from the true God. And that means whatever Moses speaks, whatever Moses does has great weight. Because he is the spokesman of God. Because he is the servant of the true God. You see, above it all, God is showing Moses his jealousy for Israel. God treasures his people, loves them, delights in them. And so he is jealous for them. He's working all of this through Moses and through all the circumstances that he'll send with Moses. He's working it all for the well-being of his people. 
Now fast forward a little bit. They're nearer to Egypt. We're not told exactly where or when this happens, just that they're on the way and they're at a lodging place, a motel of sorts. There, we're told, the Lord met him. Now, there's a lot of questions that aren't answered here. How did God meet Moses here? Did he meet him in a physical form, the way he several times met Abraham? Or did he visit spiritually, revealing his presence through the work of the Spirit? Did he announce himself, or was it the circumstances that announced him? We're not told. What we are told is that God visited Moses and sought to put him to death. Again, the details are sketchy. He might have sought to put him to death similarly to how God fought with Jacob by the river Jabbok in physical form, engaging in combat with him. Or it might have been by means of an illness that brought Moses near to death's door. By whatever method, they knew that it was the Lord who had come, and they knew that Moses was about to die. Now you have to admit, that seems odd. God has been working to get Moses convinced to go to Egypt to be his spokesman, to deliver his people from their slavery. Moses has been so very reluctant. I mean, God had to give him signs and wonders and encouragement and finally just a flat-out command, you got to go. And now, now that he's finally obeying, now that he's finally going, God tries to put him to death. What is going on there? Well, our God is not illogical. Right? So if he's doing this, he has a reason. And he did. Our God is just. And he is giving Moses a lesson that he will not forget. A lesson that, in fact, if he doesn't get, he won't survive. And it's a lesson that he has to learn exceptionally well before he goes to deliver God's son. To see why God is striking Moses, to see what the lesson is, we have to look further ahead in our text. Because of God, of course, God doesn't kill Moses here. He releases his servant, pardons him, but only when Moses' son is circumcised. Now, how he circumcised the circumstances there, we'll get to that in a minute. But recognize that it's only then, when his son receives the sign and seal of the covenant that Moses is forgiven, released. Now, we're not told which son it was. Moses had two. Likely, it seems, it was probably the younger. Because we're not told that it had to happen to both, and it would have. Very likely, John Calvin is correct when he speculates that because Moses was living among unbelievers, heathens, where this practice was not common... It's very likely that his circumcising of his oldest son caused such outcry that he decided, I'll just avoid all of that drama with the second one. But either way, he had one son who had not received the sign and seal of the covenant. Now remember what we know about that sign and seal. In Genesis 17, 
God commands Abraham and all of his offspring that every male in their family, every male in their households, not just those born to them, but also those who come to them by conversion or by slavery, was to be circumcised. They were to receive this sign and seal of the covenant. And it was to signify to them that they were God's people, set apart from those who were not. That he he had promised, I will be your God and you will be my people. And he had promised that he would accomplish everything necessary to make that so. It was a sign and seal that said, you are mine. I have claimed you. And it pointed forward. It pointed forward to the seed, to the Son who was to come and who by the shedding of blood would accomplish everything necessary to give them peace with their God. That's what circumcision was. That's what it signified to them. And God told Abraham in Genesis 17, you do it. Not when they're old enough to decide whether they want it on their own. Not when they're old enough to understand it all. No. Eight days. When they are the barest of infants. When they have no idea what is happening to them. When they are utterly and completely powerless. Because until I come to you, because until I convert you, you are powerless and clueless. And so by this sacrament, they would see that all of the effort, all of the initiative, all of the grace comes from God. To withhold that sign and seal from his son was tremendously significant. According to Genesis 17, it made Moses' son a covenant breaker. In God's eyes, that child was cut off from a relationship with him. Even before the child understood what was happening, because of his father's failure, he was cut off from God and from a relationship with God. And that made Moses himself a covenant breaker. He was responsible for ensuring that that son who was entrusted to his care was circumcised, regardless of what the people around him thought, regardless of what Jethro or Zipporah might have thought. And so Moses, in failing to administer that sacrament to his son, he showed that he cared about something. Maybe the opinions of men, maybe his own comfort and well-being, but he cared about something more than he cared about God and obeying God. And such rebellion is abundantly worthy of God's wrath. I mean, consider what he denied to his son. Circumcision was a sacrament that assured God's people that God had chosen them. I will be your God. And it taught them. God chose them when they were too weak to choose him. It taught them to look forward to the time when God would accomplish the fullness of all of the promises. In failing to circumcise his son, Moses denied that boy a share in all of those promises, all of those lessons. How selfish of him, how unloving. And it was all the more significant because of what Moses was. He was God's spokesman. He was God's servant. The words he spoke were to be represented as coming from God himself. The signs he did, demonstrations of God's power. So obviously the people would look to Moses as an example. This is how I am to be. This is what I am to do. And if Moses 
willfully scorned such an important command of God with regard to his child. Could the people be expected to do any better? Of course not. Moses must learn and must embrace God's jealousy for the children of the covenant. The Lord had already assured Moses that he would not allow Pharaoh to come between him and his children. And now Moses sees he's no better. Moses will not be allowed to come between God and his children either. Do you see the lessons God sets before you in God seeking to put Moses to death over this? To be sure, we no longer circumcise our children. That sacrament has been fulfilled with the shedding of Christ's blood. But we still have a sacrament of entrance into the covenant. Now it's baptism. And although the form has changed, the sacrament of entrance is just as important. Because the promises of baptism are the promises of circumcision. They're no different. Those same promises We're going to hold on one moment. Peyton had a slight uh, problem there. They're taking care of it in the back. We're going to pause for just a, a moment of prayer, okay? Father, you are the one who watches over us every moment. We pray that you would uh, watch over Peyton and uh, provide the, the help that she needs right now. And we thank you that you are always with us, that you always care for us. May your power be evident. In Jesus' name, amen. God has not removed from us the calling to set that sign and seal on our children. And it means now what it meant then. It means these little children. We've seen so many receive that sign, right? And what's it mean? Kids, do you know what it means? That you receive that water on your head? It means that God said, you're mine. You don't even remember it, do you? No. But when you couldn't ask for it, when you couldn't understand it, God already then said, this one's mine. I choose him. I desire her. What an amazing picture of his grace. Now, of course, you're called to respond to that. But more important to this text, your parents are called to ensure that it's administered. Your parents are called to ensure that you understand it. Your parents are called to employ that sign, to use it as a demonstration of who you are in God's sight. And he doesn't take it lightly. He took it so seriously that he was willing to put Moses to death over neglecting it. Jesus said in Mark 10, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. And then taking these covenant children, these little ones who had received circumcision, the sign and seal of the covenant, he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. You see, Jesus was showing us the same lesson. 
I love those children. They're mine because I chose them and you must not neglect to bring them to me. That's what we see in verse 24. However, Moses did not die. Neither did he somehow save himself. Instead, God spared Moses because of Zipporah's faithful presentation of God's child. And that's what we see in the other verses. Now, we're not told how Zipporah knew to do what she did. It seems most likely, and this is pure speculation, it seems most likely that the child was not circumcised because of a disagreement between Moses and Zipporah, or Moses and Zipporah's family. And she recalled that when she saw how Moses was being struck by God, was being afflicted, and recognized that this is the reason. But for whatever reason, in whatever manner, she understood the lesson God was teaching here, and so she acted. But then the passage gets curious. The first thing that's curious is the feet. Whose feet did Zipporah touch, and with what, and why? Isn't that odd? Well, here's the thing. It's difficult to talk about circumcision. It's awkward. It always has been. That's not new to our age. And so people use euphemisms, delicate, polite terms that won't be so offensive. Feet in the Hebrew is one of those terms. It doesn't always refer to the part of the body on which you stand. Sometimes it refers to the the part that Zipporah was about to cut. Now, there are two things that many of our English translations include that aren't found in the Hebrew. The Hebrew does not say Moses' feet. It just says his feet. Nor does it say with it. It simply says she touched to his feet. So if we were to read verse 25 in its most natural, in its most literal translation, and Zipporah took a flint knife and she cut off the foreskin of her son and she touched to his feet and she said, Now, keeping in mind that polite language, we can see that she cut and she touched refer to the same thing. She cut tells us what she did with the flint. She touched tells us what she was doing as she spoke. You see, God wants us to understand that what Zipporah spoke, she spoke while she was administering the sacrament. But what did she mean by what she said? The word that's used there that's rendered... Bridegroom is one of those words that doesn't have an English equivalent. What it refers to is a relationship that's established by covenant. Okay? So, for instance, back in uh, Exodus 3, it refers to Jethro, and it's translated father-in-law. In Genesis 19, it refers to the men betrothed to Lot's daughters, and it's translated sons-in-law. It always refers to a relationship established By covenant, sometimes a marriage covenant, but always a relationship established by covenant. So the question is, to whom was Zipporah speaking? If you look at verse 26, you'll see that what Zipporah said, she spoke in reference to the sacrament. See, everything in verse 25 refers to, not Moses, Moses is over there. She's fulfilling the covenant, or the the sacrament. 
And then as she's doing that, she speaks and she declares, you are my relation by covenant through blood. She's speaking to her son. She's explaining to him the significance of what is occurring. And she's saying, essentially, you were my son, but now you are my brother by blood. You were my son, but now you have a deeper relationship. Because you see, that's what circumcision is. That's what baptism is. It's a sign and seal that brings us into a relationship with God and with all of those who belong to God. And that's a covenant relationship that's established by blood, not the blood of circumcision, the blood of Christ, the blood of the sacrifice, the blood of the one who came that we might be reconciled to God. You see, Zipporah, she may have had previously a problem with circumcision. She may, that may have been a point of contention between her and Moses in the past, but it was no longer. This is a confession of her faith. That Moses' God is her God. That the promises that he extended to Moses and to Israel, he extended also to her because she received them by faith. And that she's now setting the, the sign and seal of those promises on this child of hers. And we know that's the significance of what she says because of what happens immediately after. And he let him alone. There the reference is to Moses. The Lord has been seeking to kill, now he releases. The Lord has been preparing to judge, now he forgives. Would God have forgiven Moses if, as our English translations seem to render it, Zipporah did what she did with scorn or with anger or with wrath? Of course not. There's no bitterness there. She's confessing the significance of what she is doing, the significance of the promise that God has laid, not just upon Moses and not just upon her, but upon this child. You are now my brother in the covenant by blood. And immediately Moses is released. God forgives. The relationship is restored. Brothers and sisters, when we baptize our children, Zipporah's confession must be ours. From the word go, That child means so very much to us as parents. Huh? I mean, it's absolutely astounding. You didn't realize you could love a, a person that much, right? God loves him more. When we bring that child up for baptism, that's what we're confessing. As much as I love this child, God loves this child more. And as unified as I was with this little boy, with this little girl, by blood, by DNA, by my own heart, that sacrament demonstrates a unity that's even deeper. Because it's not limited to the physical, but it goes right down to the spirit, to the soul. Because we who are united in Christ, we who are united by the covenant, share the same salvation, share the same Savior, share the same Holy Spirit. Now, please understand, that doesn't mean salvation's 
automatic for our children. Young people, the fact that you were baptized doesn't mean, boom, automatic, doesn't matter what I do, I'm saved. No. You're called to receive those promises with a living faith. You're called to act accordingly as you grow up, maturing in your faith, maturing in your understanding of Christ, living as one who is putting off the old of the flesh and putting on the new life of the Spirit. That's your calling. And if you reject that, if you scorn that, all the worse, because you knew better, right? But the promise... The promise came to you before you even knew what it was. And that's what you're responding to. And God's serious about it. When Moses takes his family into Egypt, he's going to go with his wife and with his children whom he loves, but he's going to go really with a part of Israel, with a part of the church trailing behind him. A woman and two sons whom God had chosen, whom God had claimed as his own. And that was the lesson that Israel as a whole needed to see. So do we. Again, when we bring our children, we bring them confessing. You, my child, have received the promises I have received. God has chosen you. God has put this sacrament upon you. But we don't just do it then. We need to raise them up with that confession. That means when we put them to bed at night and we pray with them, we pray with them to the God who has called us and them His children. When we read the Bible to them, we don't read it to them as something for them to judge, something for them to decide whether they want to follow We read it to them as the word of their heavenly Father to which they are to submit. When we discipline them, we discipline them explicitly. Not just to follow us, not just to do it because mom said so or because dad said so, but to do it because when you obey me, you're learning to obey your heavenly Father. All that we do, when we teach them to work, teach them to work in a way that honors the Father, Not just a way that will allow them to get a good job or that will allow them to impress men. No, so that they can learn how to work as the, the children and the servants of their heavenly Father. All of life needs to be infused with that. That knowledge that they are the children of God, that they are called to love Him, to serve Him, to care for Him in all things. That's what God calls, of, calls us to do. To recognize His jealousy for the children He has claimed as His own. And when we do, He blesses that. It's not a, a salary. It's not something we earn. But graciously, lovingly, He employs that confession that we constantly bring to our children. You have become my brother in the covenant by the blood of Christ. May God use it powerfully in the life of all our children. Amen. Lord, we thank you that you are so very faithful to us and to our children after us. We thank you that you love them even more than we do. That you're jealous for them. And that you work all of the circumstances in their lives. 
to demonstrate that to them. Father, we pray that you would make us to be faithful as your sons and daughters and to be faithful in raising up these children that you have entrusted to us. Use our parenting to draw them close to you. And Father, we pray this with thanksgiving that you have done so with us so that we can call out upon you as our loving and faithful Father. In Jesus' name, amen. In response, let us stand and sing together from our Trinity Psalter hymnal, number 194, Gracious Savior, Gentle Shepherd, 194. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you provide so perfectly for us through not just our finances, but through our life, our health, our strength, the circumstances with which you providentially fill our lives. All of it comes from your hand. And we confess that all of it is perfect in your sight. Receive now the tithes and the offerings that we bring. 
as a token of our gratitude and of our faith. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Our offering song this morning is number 78, Psalm 78 from Trinity Psalter Hymnal. We'll sing the first four stanzas. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.